Welcome to MEC Connect. This is Matthew Yaling with Midwest Employers Casualty. I'm joined today with Patty Reinecke and Dan Dalton. In episode three of MEC Connect, we're going to have Dan tell us about claim investigation on migratory claims. Welcome back, Dan. During season one, Dan hit the similar topic of investigation on catastrophic claims. If you haven't listened to season one, those episodes are all available. Dan did a great job of explaining multiple facets of catastrophic file and the importance of investigation and involving a defense attorney in that episode. In season two, we've already had Sherry Murray and Cam Garrett define migratory and legacy claims. They explain that migratory claims often start as a simple sprain or strain However, over multiple years, these sprain and strains morph into a much more complex claim, often called creeping cats or migratory or legacy claims. So Dan, the question that I'd like to kick it off to you with is, we talked about catastrophic claims and the importance of defense attorney. What's the difference that you see in migratory claims and the investigation process when a claims are already several years old and when the claim's coming to you as a legal representative for an excess carrier? Thanks, Matt. The first thing I'd look at is what is a disputed issue when a file comes in and you you use the broad term migratory claim, you know, a a claim that that started out as a sprain strain and, you know, eight years later, you know, the person can't walk because they have complex regional pain syndrome or something else. But I would broaden it to, you know, any type of non-catastrophic claim, cancer claim, COVID, anything that, that is not brain injury, spinal cord, you know, severe burn, something that there's a traumatic event and there's an immediate very bad injury. But first thing I look at is what is a disputed issue? Is the employer challenging compensability? Do they believe that this didn't happen in the course and scope of employment? Is this an occupational disease where they're asserting a defense that whatever disease process the injured worker has was not the result of exposure at the workplace? Is there a defense to the claim such as intoxication or deviation from employment? Sometimes claims get accepted early on and issues become in dispute as the claim progresses, such as, you know, the nature and extent of the person's disability, whether they can return to work, whether they're entitled to temporary total disability benefits. Sometimes claimants or claimants' lawyers allege additional conditions that the employer or the carrier may not think is related to the work injury. So really, it depends on what's the issue in dispute. So when a claim comes into our office, I mean, the first thing that we have to do is we have to go through and figure out, are there disputed issues? You know, has the claim been accepted as compensable? You know, is the work status, you know, something that's still in flux? And from that point, then you use the same kind of what I would call fact-finding investigatory techniques. You know, you figure out, what information's available, whether that's facts or opinions that you think may support the employer's position on the issue, and then you make a determination as to whether or not that information is ultimately going to be credible and persuasive to the fact finder. And that, you know, the evidence, documentary evidence, witnesses, experts, things of that nature. Thank you, Dan. I, I appreciate all that. So you kind of walk through the steps when you're investigating a claim. And I know I think you've been here 15 years now. And with these migratory type claims, this is actually a majority of the claims that we see in the excess world. Can you think of trends that you would see? um, Anything that contributes to it becoming a claim that is difficult to manage or complicates it in any way? And possibly if it was managed differently, if that claim would be able to resolve versus 
kind of morphing into these really complicated and hard to manage claims? Are there any insight you can share? Yeah, I think some of the uh, common themes are the medical gets out of control. If you're in a state which allows you to manage and control the medical, then you have a leg up because you dictate what providers the injured worker sees and what medical treatment you pay for. And if you have control over that, well, then you can kind of guide the course of the treatment. If you're in a state where the employee gets to pick the doctor, then it's much more difficult. And the claim potentially is subject to going off the rails. That's one common thing. The other is, you know, just having an opportunity to resolve the case full and final. If you have that opportunity, you know, we always encourage our customers to take it for this exact reason. The best claim is a closed claim. So to the extent that you can truncate your liability through a full and final settlement, that's, that's generally the best approach, provided that it makes financial sense. Those are some of the common trends that I see in claims going off the tracks. Thank you for that. So I think when we were home, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of people were working out of their home and saw endless attorney commercials on TV for any kind of injury, work comp or, or otherwise too. But just remembering when you talked about the complicated medical, these are people's lives. Once they have a procedure that has changed the structure of their joint, their knee, their shoulder, their back forever, they don't go back to the same person they were before that, that injury at work. And if there was a different route they could take to get their lives back and be able to, you know, coach their kids' basketball team or whatever, it's a much better road to go down than the other road where you end up with uh, not being able to return to work and not being able to do all those personal things in your life that you're used to doing before that injury occurred. I agree with both those, uh, those comments and observations. And, you know, as a, somebody that's been in the insurance world for over 20 years now, I know at every position that I've been at, we always care about the best care for the injured employee. And especially in states where you can direct care, it's like, why would you send them to suboptimal care? Sometimes there's a belief that, you know, the insurance carrier or the TPA, the employer just wants them back as quickly as possible. And yeah, there's a component of we want them back to a functional employment, back to gainful employment as quickly as possible. But we also want them back healthy and at their pre-injury status. So I think uh, that's a good observation is, you know, we want to get them the best care. We're not, we're not sending them to Dr. Nose or we don't recommend them going to a doctor that's going to make the condition worse or just say, oh, this isn't work-related. If there's a legitimate work injury, right, we want to get them back to a, a condition of a recovery and, and to their pre-injury status. So thanks for those clarifications. And you've talked about some of those, you know, the medical components and things that contribute to excess claims. A lot of times the claim is multiple years old when it you know, has morphed or, or is first recognized as an excess level claim. What are some of the, maybe the non-medical components and is return to work even viable anymore in, in those claims? And how do you approach that from an investigative standpoint or from a, an excess standpoint? So, you know, in, in comp, you know, most state statutes provide that the employer is responsible for essentially two different levels of benefits. They have to provide medical care to cure and relieve the effects of the injury, and they have to provide you know, some level of indemnity or wage replacement for when the injured worker is off work and you know, cannot work because of the work injury. And then most states provide you know, some compensation scheme for disability. If you can go back to work, Patty mentioned, you know, after one of these injuries, you're uh, 
body is not the same as it was before. Well, state laws contemplate that, and they provide a, a scheme to compensate you know, the injured worker for some level of disability. It's commonly referred to as permanent partial disability. And then you know, to the extent that the injured worker can never go back to work, the employer would be responsible for permanent and total disability benefits. So sometimes, I would say in most cases, that the medical issues are one thing, but the other issue is, you know, what is the nature and extent of the injured worker's disability? How much indemnity does the employer owe? If the person, you know, is alleging that they cannot go back to work, well, the employer has a right to contest that. You know, if the state allows discovery, they take the injured worker's deposition, that's, you know, in the state of Missouri, you know, that would be step one, you know, in a permanent total disability alleged claim. I mean, I'm going to take the injured worker's deposition, I'm going to ask them what they can do, what do they do on a daily basis, interview friends, neighbors, possibly, you know, think about surveillance. Oftentimes you uh, learn things and, oh, the uh, person might be working a kind of a, a job on the, on the side. You know, you can subpoena tax records. There are things that you can do to figure out the credibility of their allegations that they can't return to work. You know, those are just standard figuring out what the facts are and then being able to frame your kind of defense to that. Generally, the, the types of cases that we see you know, disability is, is the person permanently totally disabled? And then how do you combat that short of settling the case? Obviously, if you settle the case, it's over. But if the parties can't reach an agreement on, you know, the value, then you have to take the thing to trial and there's either going to be an award or, or finding that either the worker is permanently totally disabled or they're not permanently and totally disabled, but they have some level of disability. So you want to ferret out all of the components to that. I'll, I'll mention something else because this is one of my pet peeves in you know, terms of investigation and you know, marshalling the facts and claim handling on these migratory claims. I'll see files where, quite frankly, the claim handler doesn't know what to do. So they say, oh, let's get an IME, all right? Well, what we try to school people here is, you know, and an IME is an independent medical examination. Most states allow, while the employer has a uh, duty and obligation under the work compact to provide medical care. You know, that's actual treatment. Most states allow a mechanism that if the employer carrier, you know, wants to get a second opinion, or if a a doctor says that he or she thinks that this condition is related, they are allowed to have the injured worker examined by a doctor who's not a treating physician, but is essentially retained to review information, do a physical exam, and then provide expert medical opinions with a reasonable degree of medical certainty as to the condition at hand. We see a lot of overuse of that technique. And our approach here is, first question you ask is, what are you going to do with it, right? I'm not going to spend $25,000 on an IME if it's not going to do any good to support the position. So ultimately, what do you hope to do with it? And really, if, if you're getting to a point where you're thinking about getting an IME, you should have defense counsel involved. So we would ask, you know, okay, um, somebody's suggested get an IME, consult with defense counsel. What do we intend to do with the IME? And then the way that we approach it, if the jurisdiction allows it, is the first thing we would do is we would get together the medical evidence that we have, 
we would present that to the expert that we have retained and have he or she review that information before they examine the, the patient and then you know have a conversation with us about what their initial findings are. And if the initial findings are you know not going to be helpful, well, then you end it right there. What, what we have seen is, as I said, knee-jerk reaction, don't know what to do on the file, get an IME, set an exam. The injured worker goes and shows up at the doctor's office, and they examine, and they give a terrible report for the employer. Well, what have you done? You've just spent money to make the case for the claimant's lawyer. I mean, that's, that's, that's just not best practice. So our, our, again, our approach is to, you know, first figure out what you're going to do with it. If the jurisdiction allows it, have the doctor look at all the information first. And then if, if you think that the, the doctor is going to be helpful, then you ask, you know, would it benefit your opinion to schedule an actual examination? Sometimes that's not necessary if it's a COVID claim or a cancer claim. Well, a physical exam other than taking a history from the patients, you know, not going to be helpful necessarily. So you would confer with your expert, and if they think that a physical examination would, would be helpful to aid their opinions, well, then you set that up, and then after the exam, what always has to happen is a report gets prepared, and that gets disclosed to the other side. So that's something in all of these, that's a technique that can be used, and it can be used effectively and for the right reason. But those would be the caveats that we would give on that. You know, sometimes it just on these bad claims, people throw their hands up. You know, they're, you know, spending 30 grand a year and nobody knows what to do. So they try, okay, well, we're going to try this. Doesn't work. We're going to try this. It doesn't work, which, you know, may be appropriate to try to get the claim back under control. And as Patty said, to get the injured worker back to a functional state where they're going to have a productive and happy life. But, you know, sometimes these things get difficult. And just if, if there's nothing else a, a about that component of this podcast, I would just caution the, the use of IMEs. And then the other thing I would say is you want to have a doctor that's going to be credible and that's going to be persuasive. And you're only going to know that if you have competent counsel that handles these cases and knows the judges that hear these cases and knows which experts are well-received and which ones are not. Because I can go out and get an opinion, I pretty much guarantee, on any defense that we'd have from a doctor somewhere in the country, and that may not be credible at all. So that's where you really engage local counsel that's competent, help you navigate through the issues, and it may be that, that that's not the best approach, that there may be some other avenue to pursue. But those are, those are things that I would consider. Yeah, thank you for that answer. In future episodes, we're going to talk about cost containment and resolution of claims. And I think an approach along what you just explained that is often forgotten or omitted or not thought about is going to the employee's attorney and the employee, depending if they're represented or not, but if they're represented, going through their attorney and having a conversation with them. You know, we've, or in the first season, we talked about MSAs a little bit. And sometimes you have to involve the opposing counsel in your efforts to bring the claim to resolution. So we'll talk about this in, in future episodes. But you know, I think sometimes we overlook the simple thing right in front of us. And sometimes it's actually going to the opposing counsel, right? And maybe you can speak about this a little bit. Uh, you know, involving them, what's the ultimate outcome that the injured employee wants to have with this claim? In most cases, they don't want an employer 
or the TPA or an excess carrier involved in their life forever. A lot of times they want the autonomy of handling that claim themselves. So I think one thing that we often overlook is that we need to involve the employee. It doesn't have to be an adversarial relationship and getting the best care and the best outcome a lot of times we have to, even if they're represented, we need to bring them back into that loop and conversation. No, I would agree with that 100%. In some cases, there really aren't issues that are in dispute. It's just that the injured worker is in chronic pain. And, you know, what do you do about that? As you said, engaging opposing counsel, that's always kind of my first line is, and comp is really set up so that it's, in most states, it's, it's really supposed to not be a purely adversarial system, right? It's a administrative system. There's no jury. It's tried in front of a, a judge. And sometimes the rules of evidence don't necessarily apply. And it's, it's more collegial in most jurisdictions. Lawyers, you know, um, that handle these cases frequently, that's all they do. It's a small, close-knit community of lawyers. So you're going to run into people and professionalism wins the day, right? Even if a a case is disputed, you know, look, we've tried to settle it. You understand what our position is, the value we placed on it. We're just going to have to try this case. Well, that doesn't mean that things have to be cutthroat. Okay. You know, let's get to the end point here, which is the trial. And if if you don't have medical records yet, can you send out a subpoena? Yeah. How about calling up the claimant's lawyer and saying, look, you know, the claimant mentioned in their deposition that they treated with Dr. So-and-so as their primary care doctor. We need these records. If you have them, please send them to me. If not, I will send you a medical authorization to have your client sign. Generally, lawyers um, are amenable to that kind of thing. You can, you can be a zealous advocate for your client, but you also should maintain a level of professionalism and that's generally the, the way that we approach things. And, and there are times that, you know, you, you reach an impasse or you, you know, deal with counsel that's on the other side that is just not somebody that is reasonable, and you have to work within the system to overcome that. But I would agree with you, Matt. Sometimes we overlook the easy thing, which is just ask the other side or, you know, hey, look, what, do you, what is the end goal here? I mean, what, do you, what does your client want? And if, if they want to never work again and want to get a firm total check, well, then, all right, let's, let's get that on the table. If it's something else, you know, maybe we can craft some kind of a mutually agreeable resolution to, you know, achieve that. So that's a good observation. Definitely made some great points there, Dan. So I think it's really important that what you pointed out with workers' comp, that's the employer, you know, is going to do their investigation, but they take their employees as they get them. And when they're injured at work, they just move forward. And I think the the goals that you had and the kind of the things you outlined in respect of just keeping the claim moving forward, if you don't know what to do, think about a logical path. I think that really helps keep the, the claim um, civil and all parties really working together. Those are great insight that you provided there. Right. And uh, here at MEC Connect, we partner with our accounts and the third-party administrators to make a positive impact in employees' lives. Dan, I know you, you answered this uh, in the first season of MEC Connect, and I'm going to ask you again, can you provide an example of a meaningful connection you had recently when you've made a positive impact either on an account or an injured employee's life? Sure. I mean, I, I don't know if I use this 
example during the uh, last year's episode, but if I did, it's because this is something that that we do on a on a weekly basis. But you know, we we deal with these horrific injury claims, and one of the approaches that we take is we we try at the earliest opportunity to engage our customer and our stakeholders and, you know, have what we call a a roundtable discussion where experts from our claims team, you know, whether that's the lawyer, our medical director, our our nurses, claims management, the analyst, all get together with a representative of the employer or the group self-insured and their assigned defense counsel and the broker and TPA. And we kind of roundtable the uh, facts and circumstances of the individual claim. And we, you know, figure out, you know, what the issues are and what's the best path forward. And most of the time, you know, especially on these, you know, catastrophic losses, there really aren't any disputes. There aren't any issues that are contested. The issue is how do we get the injured worker to the best place possible? And, you know, sometimes that takes a collaborative approach you know, a discussion with the people on the ground that actually know the psychosocial dynamics of, you know, what's going on. How is this affecting the injured worker's family? How is it affecting the employer? How is it affecting his co-workers? And a, a common theme is, you know, somebody gets injured and, you know, the first thing that they want to do is they want to go home. I mean, this is a horrific injury and, you know, nobody wants to be in a hospital, right? Nobody wants to be away from their family. The family doesn't want that either right? Well, we see that in just about every one of these, you know, catastrophic losses. And sometimes it it takes a concerted effort to get the family to understand that, look, right, everybody wants to be home, but the best thing for this injured worker right now is to get them to a center of excellence or, or, or to get them to a acute rehab hospital or to get them somewhere where they can get the intensive care that they need. And so while we all understand the human nature, the visceral response is, I want to get back home where I'm comfortable with my family. You know, sometimes you have to take a step back and then figure out, okay, how do we message that to the, to the injured worker's family and the injured worker? So that ultimately, you know, while this initial small sacrifice is going to pay dividends in the future, and we you know, just had a discussion like that a couple days ago where that exact issue came up and it's so it's that concerted approach collaboration where we see this on just about every one of the files that we have but the people that are experiencing it you know this is a life-altering event for them and getting the benefit of our years of, of dealing with that can be helpful great thank you dan and thank you patty we at mec connect aim to make a positive difference in your day. We hope that listening to MEC Connect has done that for you. Please stay tuned for future episodes. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today.